Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi. Welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On this week's episode, we're talking about the third and final season of The Leftovers with executive producer Damon Lindelof. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Deborah Birnbaum, Variety's executive editor of TV. I am Mo Ryan. I am Variety's chief TV critic. And it's our pleasure to welcome Damon Lindelof, the creator of Leftovers. I'm Damon Lindelof. I have no association with Variety. <laughs> Yet. 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 Yes. <laughs> but to you, be determined. But you do have an association with one of our favorite shows, The Leftovers. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. And we're excited to talk to you about season three, the final season, Breaking Our Heart. Indeed. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll try. I really just want to know how many times I'll just sob uncontrollably. In the, in the last season, can you just give me an over/under on like just ballpark? Are we like delineating between crying and sobbing? Like, the, let's just let's say just general say that, cry umbrella. In between that, there can be lump and throat. Yeah, there can be like five points crying scale, lump and throat. Are you teary. a are you a hard cry? Let's let's get a sense <laughs> of like when's the last time a television show made you cry, and what was that moment, so I can get a sense for. Well, I watch This Is Us, so I'm a weeper. I'm a weeper. Okay. This Is Us is definitely, point. you know, a, 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 a cry show. So This Is... Leftovers is a slightly different cry. It's not like, a, oh my God, they're, the triplets, they're, you know... <laughs> They've they're, been they're, they're all related. That's like a good cry. The Leftovers is, is more, more of an existential, uh, you know, uh, everything's broken. Hopefully these people are going to be okay cry. But... I don't know. There's a couple of big there, there's a couple of big cries uh, before the before the show ends. Well, your show shares the honor of the I, I should call it the Soloway Award for you know at some point body racking sobs. Oh yeah, just you know because I think it's very. You know what got me this last year? The turtle. The turtle. The turtle. Oh, the turtle. Oh my God, that was that was like the cry, the unexpected cry and of the then season. The, the mm-hmm. final song. Who knew an Alanis Morissette song? <laughs> Unbelievable. Let's just talk about transparent for the next the next forty five minutes. We're not gonna let you digress. Yes. We're not gonna let you do it. Exactly. So um, far I've gotten you to talk about this is us and transparent. We're five minutes in. I have not talked about the leftovers. I think, that this I think is, we're on this track. Is all part of your yeah. plan, clearly. Most certainly. So let's start with one question. Season two opened with a pretty, you know, amazing opener. Do you have a similar plan for this season, for the third season? I think that um when we write the show, uh, we obviously start from a place of, is this cool for us and do we like it? But you also, uh, once you come up with an idea you like, we try and exercise to 
kind of come out of our bodies and say, now we're the audience for the show. We didn't come up with this idea. We watched The Leftovers. What's our expectation for the way that the third season should start? And I think that that now, based on what we did at the beginning of season two, that we would be disappointed if 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 at, le- at the very least a big swing wasn't taken. Now the reality is is like you can't do the same thing twice. But what inspired the season two opening opening for those of you who haven't seen it? A why are you listening to this podcast? <laughs> but B uh, we we went to uh, you know the Paleolithic era and tracked the journey of a of a pregnant woman uh, who falls victim to an earthquake that basically wipes out her entire uh, clan of. Uh, of cave dwellers and then she proceeds to give birth to her own baby and hike across the wilderness and she gets bitten by a poisonous snake she dies um and the baby is sort of left there crying we think she's going to die but then another cave woman comes along and picks up the baby and that's just the first five minutes of the season Um, when you put it that way (laughs) yeah so uh so but what we loved about it and i think what inspired it was there's this Coen brothers movie called a serious man that that i love and it starts with this uh, um, uh, kind of very disconnected uh, fable um, uh, about a Dybbuk. Uh, and, uh, um, and then it, the, the movie never explains why, why they chose to start that way. There's no, the, like the connective thread is, is more emotional, thematic, philosophical, etc. But I just love openings like that. And there are obviously hints all along the way through the second season of Leftovers that I think reconnect back to that opening. Um, but but I love the idea of like, what was that? And how is it going to connect to everything else that I've seen and I'm going to see? And to that end, we, we, we tried to do that again in an entirely different uh, construct. And we tried to be mythic in our storytelling I, I guess what I can say is that the opening of the third season of the show is actually a true story. It happened, um, and we have dramatized it, and Mimi Leader um, probably spent as much time planning out and executing the first five minutes of season uh, three as she did the entire rest of that episode uh, with a huge uh, assist by John Pano, who's our production designer. A lot of building was involved, is what I'll say. It was shot in Australia. Um, so although the show, uh, the characters don't start in Australia, uh, we wanted to come out of the gate um, in Australia. So, uh, you know, that's that's pretty much all I can say about it. I don't want to raise uh, hopes too high, but... It's out there, yeah. I think. As always. Let's talk about Australia. Why did you decide to move the plot of the season to Australia? Um, a couple reasons. Uh, first and foremost, I think that Tom and I and the writers, uh, as we started talking about the second season and how excited we were about moving the show to Texas, sort of already started to get it in our heads. If there was going to be a third season of the show, that would be someplace other than Texas so that when you thought about the seasons of The Leftovers um, in, in the same way that I think about The Wire, which is probably my favorite show of all time in, until I start talking about The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or Mad Men or Twin Peaks or Buffy or all those other... I'll, I'll always say transparent. <laughs> those are also my favorite shows of all time. But for the purposes of this conversation, The Wire is, people will say this, you know, Hamsterdam or it, the season in the school or the uh, or the docks, you know. So I, I I've wanted the leftovers to feel like the binders of the books are all a different color, um, and so we already had it in our head it was going to be someplace else. And then the second thing that happened was 
Tom Speziali, who didn't work on the first season but came in between seasons one and two, he's like, hey, have you ever seen these Peter Weir movies, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock and The Last Wave? Um, and I said, I saw Picnic at Hanging Rock in film school. He said, you should watch it again. So I watched both those films back to back in one night. They're both set in Australia. Um, and Hanging Rock ended up being a huge inspiration for season two because it's about these girls who go... Uh, we talked d- about that They disappear. Last year, yes. Go to um, Variety.com yeah. and link back to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an amazing... Shameless plug. It's an, it's, Shameless plug. It's an amazing movie. And what's incredible about the movie is like it starts with like a card that says, like, you know... A hundred years ago in Australia, these girls went on a picnic and they disappeared and their disappearance was never solved. And then the movie just starts and you're like, oh, they're going to show me that, but they're, they've already told me they're not going to solve it. That's like a Lindelof fastball. <laughs> Sounds very <laughs> <Yeah>. familiar. <laughs> so uh, I've heard that like, before. I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. And it also feels like it's a true story, but it's completely made up. Also a Lindelof fastball. So loved Hanging Rock. But then The Last Wave was the other movie. And The Last Wave ended up being kind of the inspiration for the third season of the show. I think both thematically and literally. But more importantly, Australia just feels weird. Like there's just something... In the in the it feels like uh, very mythic and ancient, but also very modern. It's kind of stuck in a time warp in in many ways. Like uh, uh, so, that idea of like you could just kind of wa- go wandering out of your house and end up in the outback. So you can use Australia as both like a dystopian future in the Mad Max movies, mm-hmm. but also like this kind of ancient past. Um, I was really fascinated, particularly in the last wave with the uh, indigenous people of Australia, the, the aboriginals. Um, uh, uh, so um, that the idea of, oh, here's a, you know, here's a, a, a set of, of creation stories and myth um, and um, uh, that I don't really know that much about. It's entirely different than the, the Native American uh, story um, and much more ancient. So I was like, that feels for a show that's talking about religion and origin uh, and um, and p- potentially the end of the world. What's the what's the indigenous peoples of Australia take on that? Um, and so all those things started getting us excited about Australia. So when we were writing season two, Kevin and his dad, Kevin Senior, are going on a walk in the second season. And Senior tells Kevin as Kevin is contemplating what to do with his life. Senior Senior gives him some advice. Is like get the you know. Uh, can I say fuck? Can I? Yes. Yeah. Get, you know, get the fuck out of, uh, out, out of Mapleton. Go, you know, uh, the world ended. Why don't you go and start it up again? Me, I'm going to Australia. And so the idea was basically like senior was, he was, there was a spinoff show called the adventures of Kevin Garvey senior that was happening parallel to season two of The Leftovers, and we would catch up with it in season so three. So he's been on Walkabout. Which is pretty much what we've done. Yes, right. exactly. A so, slightly different Walkabout than John Locke. Which is, and then there was also, there was just some nice symmetry to Lost began in Australia, The Leftovers is going to end there. I, I, liked that, I liked that idea. Wow. So is that what brings the characters to Australia? What? Kevin Sr.? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> but I'll I'm going to s- ask it. <laughs> um, I'll... I can say no. Kevin Sr. happens to be in Australia, and I think that that's what everyone is assuming, the reason for going there. And, I, and I'll also say that the characters don't relocate. They don't move to Australia in the way that they move to Miracle. We wanted it to kind of feel like it was one of those, 
like four episode runs of the Brady Bunch, like when they go to the Grand Canyon <laughs> or they go to Hawaii, uh, Hawaii and they, but they just never come back. Oh so the, you know, the characters are visiting Australia, um, and uh, as opposed to like, hey, like things didn't work out in Miracle, let's let's move again. But I think we had something of a maybe a little indication of this because. My favorite episode thus far of The Leftovers is International Assassin, so I have a twofold question based on that, which is we saw through the through the television in Kevin's whatever that experience was, he was somehow dad was there. And right. was that are we it seemed like he was in some some I, I, we don't know where he was. That I think was it's probably be. worth watching that scene in International Assassin or linking to it in this in it. this podcast. Mm-hmm. But Kevin Senior definitely says some th- some things. But again, it you know some people are of the mind that none of that happened and it was all in Kevin's head. Uh, I'm not sh- entirely sure that I would agree with those people. But you you know I, I don't want to ruin uh, um, their perception of the show. So right. like. You know, whatever. What all I'll say is, whatever it was that Senior said in International Assassin, we will be revisiting. We should pay attention to that. Yes. So my follow-up it was question not a is, dangling thread. We're, we're tying up all the threads on the leftovers. Well, one of the things that Lost was really good at, is, in, and I think the leftovers is good at too, is is doing an episode that's like an episode that does some that is a big swing. And so, is there? I just want you to say that there's going to be another international <laughs> and or I mean I, that what what I love about that is something that I really did love about Breaking Bad or Mad Men which is that as a discrete unit of the show it fits into that into that arc and it moves it forward but it has its own heft and its own internal logic and tension and I really are you going to do that again this season and there's one answer that I will accept <laughs> there's only one right answer here is not the, leading the witness here's the answer judge. that I will give which is as I mentioned the writers and it does bear mention bear mentioning in addition to Parada and Speziali like so much of this show comes from the minds of people other than me to its uh, incredible benefit. You know, so many writers contributed to the the third season of The Leftovers. They they bear mentioning. I'm I'm just thinking around the table because we we haven't written in in six months. But there's Tom Speziali, Tom Parada, Nick Hughes, Patrick Somerville, uh, Lila Bayak, uh, Carly Ray, and uh, Tamara Carter. So just an amazing group of people. But a, we all basically said like. Okay, if we were watching the show, would we want there to be an international assassin too? Like, or should we just quit while we're ahead? Um, and that conversation lasted for quite some time. And all I'll say is, if we eventually came to the conclusion that there should be one, uh, it was incumbent upon us to make sure that it was just as unexpected as the first time around and that we took risks in it and it wasn't just the same old, same old. At least there was a new idea. You know, Terminator 2 or Aliens mm-hmm. are great sequels that introduce new ideas into the movie versus this time it's a boat that's out of control, <laughs> you know, and, and Keanu Reeves passed, you know. Like when Keanu Reeves passes on Speed 2, don't make Speed 2. Bad idea. All props to Jason Patrick. Wow. So it's but, a different hotel chain that he wakes up in. That's correct. <laughs> so it's a double tree. Yeah, exactly. It is not a Hyatt property. It okay. is. It's it a is. motel. Hashtag double tree. <laughs> yeah. So what is Kevin's frame of mind going into this season? Uh, well, um, I, I guess 
what I can say is, and I don't think that this is a spoiler, but if you are averse to any kind of spoilers, you should probably stop listening. But if you've seen any of the materials um, uh, for The Leftovers, you know you know at the very least that Justin Thoreau is sporting like an amazing beard. It is a real beard, un- unlike Matthew Fox's beard in the flash forwards of Lost. And it took it takes someone uh, a, a fair amount of time to cultivate a beard of this. So some a period of time has passed. Let's just say a significant period of time. Um, has passed between the ending of the second season and the beginning of the third season. And part of the fun is that we just drop the audience uh, into this and they sort of have to figure out like what has happened while they've been gone. But we do, uh, we do resume um, uh, in Miracle, Texas, uh, Jardin, Texas. Things have changed there um, and, uh, and certain uh, um, there have been also some certain shakeups in uh, in. Uh, family relationships, etc. But most of the characters that we know and love uh, are still there. And what I say is that we meet Kevin at a point where he's seemingly like everything's coming up roses. Um, it kind of feels like for at least the first 10 or 15 minutes of the premiere, uh, like this is a nice epilogue uh, for the ending of season two. And I know that a lot of um, uh, critics and, and viewers of the show uh, who I agree with and admire said I'm good with it ending here uh, at the end of season two I don't want you to put these characters through the ringer just cause and obviously we took that all into mind but I've never felt like Kevin walking into the house at the end of season two was like he's okay now like there's some things that have happened to him that need to be dealt with and I think that uh, particularly in the area of, of Kevin and Nora's relationship, which I think is really the focal point of the final season, mm-hmm. which is you have these two people who found each other, but they never really had the conversations that like a healthy couple should have. Whereas like, you know, they were casually dating and then they decided to adopt a baby <laughs> that was left on their doorstep. And so they've like, both been through tremendous losses and traumas. Correct. So, so that's going to end well. Yeah. That's going to go great. That's so it's like, fine. She's still got a bulletproof vest and, you know, and a, a prostitute's number on speed dial on her phone. <laughs> so it's just like certain things have not been sorted out yet. And I think that the, the third and final season there are the, issues the story basically exists to force both of their backs up against the wall and see if they can kind of uh, pull away from the gravity of that force and towards one another and of course uh, it's going to end in horrific tragedy I mean right. and we si- I'm just warning you all like it's the leftovers gut wrenching and, and we you know I think that the the, the end of the first episode um uh, of of the season really telegraphs where we're we're headed. So because I want the audience to kind of get get ready for for things. I don't know if they'll sob or they'll just be angry, but um, we'll call you. Yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we've seen some trailers that hint at some issues for him that are, are kind of religious in theme. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I will say this: game first Game of Thrones is my favorite show. It's the greatest show ever. Um, and he changes the subject show, again. Never. No, no, I'm, I'm circling back to it. Um, can't wait for the final season of Game of Thrones. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an HBO company man. I've, I've been in the Game of Thrones tank since, uh, since George R.R. R. Martin uh, wrote the books. In any case, uh, when Jon Snow, uh, this isn't a spoiler now because we're a season beyond it. When Jon Snow died and like came back to life, it was sort of like, great, good to have you back, Jon Snow. And it was just kind of business as usual. 
um, we decided to take a different tack on the leftovers, which is if this happened to you, if you died and came back to life several times, um, you might want to just kind of be like, what's the big deal? Like, but maybe the people around you kind of want, want to make you into something that you're not. And I've kind of talked about one of the big influences, I think, going into this next year is the Monty Python film, The Life of Brian. Um, where, I often think of Monty Python in the yeah. conversations that I have about the leftovers. Absolutely. Oh, I see yes. that. Is I, see, yeah. I, I yes. just feel that there's the fun, the laughs are plenty. Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> I can no, see all the No, when the leftovers links. is silly, I think, like, it's, it's, it's best. And, funny, yeah. and we did start getting excited, I think, as the season goes on by some very silly ideas. And so the idea would be the idea was that we started getting turned on in the writers room by like if our our goal is if if someone is d- describing an episode of the leftovers to their friend that they just saw their friend should be like you're bullshitting me. <laughs> they didn't actually do that. And then it's our job as writers to actually make that episode seem less silly, but like the the three sentence synopsis of it is the most ridiculous thing ever. And so, you know, Life of Brian is, is, is about the guy who is basically, ne- you know, next door to Jesus Christ, <laughs> who finds himself, uh, you know, fleeing from the Romans. And in, 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 an, in an effort not to be uh, killed, he starts preaching on a soapbox. And these people start gathering around him. And they're like, what, what, what is it you were saying? So I, I love the idea of the reluctant prophet. I think, you know, all, all these, uh, movies, whether they're superhero movies or, you know, or even Buffy, there's that idea of like, you are the chosen one. And I think it would just be really interesting to have a character be like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not over and over and over and over again. Um, I wonder and, if showrunners so ever feel that way. That they're the chosen one? Well, that people have extreme expectations for them and that it's very difficult to meet them sometimes. I, I asked that in the question. I'm probably going to make I, you really nervous with my question. but This you can seems just like a trap for the inevitable. <laughs> Lindelof compares self to Christ no, 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 no. metaphor. Well, no. But, but I'm going to go ahead and, you know. You know, I think I, it's not even just lost, but you see that a lot with people ascri- like, why didn't you know this from day one? Six years later, why didn't like it's like people ascribe a sort of omniscience and perfection and to, to people who create TV shows that I think like no human could could really fulfill. Like that just becomes something you've been thrust into this sort of role as sort of like someone who is landing these literal planes. Sometimes with lost, and sometimes is it like kind of an overwhelming thing. Do you draw it all from that experience for yourself? Uh, you know, I mean. I don't think it's an unfair expectation. I mean, it's an incredible. It, it's it's a tremendous amount of pressure to be um, uh, to be viewed as um, to, for for the expectation to be to stick the landing every time and for there to be perfection. But when you go and you watch a baseball game and you're rooting for that team, your expectation is for whoever's at bat to get on base. And when they don't, it's disappointing, and you go like, "Well, they, you can't get on base every time, but you still expect it." And then people like Vince Gilligan come along and he's like, oh, shucks, I'm perfect. (laughs) And, you know, and they show you that they, you know, can basically produce an entirely flawless television show for multiple years without ever, you know, I've yet to meet the person who's basically like, yeah, Breaking Bad season X was kind of subpar. I mean, it just got better and better and better. So my argument for it's impossible is not true because there are a number of television shows that I think, you know, where the showrunners did execute, you know, a perfect 
vision. Well, I guess I was thinking also of season three that you are essentially landing this plane, and this is a show with a lot of big ideas, you know. And, and I mean, how was it a different thought process? Because this is something that's about faith and about community and how people view um, these huge issues, like tectonic issues in mm-hmm. people's lives and in, in the world. You know, the issues of belief, God loss you know like all these things was it was it much harder in terms of a challenge to to land a plane with that many well no you know what happens when i try to land planes <laughs> um <laughs> a few uh, is over here <laughs> no i mean and we promised we weren't going to bring it up yeah. look i i think that the, the idea of scale was always something that was very present in our minds as writers and so uh super important to us that um that there are shows like Buffy or Lost or the X-Files that essentially say the end game of the show is basically the fate of the world itself like if our here if Mulder and Scully fail that's it for the world the aliens win or if Buffy and the Scooby gang fails that's it for the world and lost if you know if Jack and the you know and the oceanic uh, survivors fail that's it that's the end of the world we wanted to play with that idea in the final season of the leftovers cuz the show is starts with an event uh, where 140 million people disappear, 2% of the world's population. So there is an expectation of the audience of like, well, at least 4% should disappear in the finale. <laughs> I mean, you kind of got to like, you've got to scale up. But I think that we wanted this, the, the series. More yeah, dragons. Dragons, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we Everything's wanted, better with dragons. We wanted <laughs> things to feel as intimate as possible and scale down. Um, so, because that's where the show, that's where the bread and butter, of, the show can feel big without... Um, without uh, playing in the same terrain. That said, we did want to play with that expectation. But most importantly, and I'm not just saying this because of the the current climate in which we live, because we wrote the show basically between January and August of last year of 2016, we were really interested in this idea of lying and fake stories and um, and sometimes, Propaganda. sometimes. Wait, where have well, I heard this? Hmm. But sometimes, sometimes the bullshit makes you feel better, and so it's a magic feather for Dumbo, where it's basically like, don't, you know, don't try to talk me out of my belief system. It's actually working for me, and it's great it's that you're. It's great that you're an atheist, but actually, I love going to church and connecting with that energy that I feel at church. And I don't want you to talk to me about how the shroud of Turin is a hoax. Like, you know, I want to connect with my belief system, and so. The show has always been really interested in this. The, the characters are spiraling in search for a system of belief that will make them feel better and that can kind of reconcile this idea of at any moment it could happen again. Um, the departure is obviously, um, uh, you know, uh, Tom Parada has talked about it as being sort of a, a, a metaphor for 9-11, but also for death. And so anyone of a certain age, I'm 43 years old now I've unfortunately had the experience where I'm just traipsing through my life and the phone rings and someone who I loved who is super close to me in this case my dad was gone and so that's what the departure feels like and so this idea of like finding a belief system where you can reconcile that and not be terrified that it's going to happen again is of paramount importance to these characters. And they've been sort of grasping onto more ludicrous and ludicrous belief systems as time goes on. But it's also really fun when they collide with other people who have even more ludicrous belief systems and they're sort of like, 
oh, your, your belief system is so much more ludicrous than mine is. And so that idea of judgment, um, is built into the concept of the rapture. Um, the, the evangelical thought is that, uh, when the rapture happens, there's a seven year period of tribulation, uh, judgment. And then there's like a second opportunity to go up to heaven, depending on how you behave. And, uh, several of the characters get kind of enthusiastic about this idea, which is, again, not to give too much away, but this idea of this, we called it the seven-year itch, um, the, the, that we, we, the, the primary story takes place seven years away from, from the original point of departure um, because they believe something big is going to happen on the anniversary of the departure, and that's kind of what we're working towards this season. You mentioned that you wrote this before you know, before the election. <laughs> I like that you're like, he's not Voldemort, Deb. You can say, you can say his name. Say it. No. I do, I do say his name. Bannon. Stephen Bannon. It's okay. If I say it, it's not real. It's okay. Does it feel different in the light of day, in the light of where we're living now? We, like so many liberals, um, uh, had blinders on and we wrote the show in complete and total anticipation of a Hillary Clinton presidency. And I think that had we really felt like uh, Trump was going to win, that there are several things that we would have done differently, but it will be really interesting to see how they play out now that he has one. Like, you know, I, I will say in an upcoming episode, you know, we deal with the Russians, we deal with a nuclear accident, um, uh, all those things were funny. They, it was played for comedy when we did it. I'm not sure how it's going to feel when it airs. Well, my whole theory is that the world has caught up to the leftovers because the sense of the leftovers... No, truly, like, this, the, the show is about a disjunction. It's about something that does... Like, fundamentally, people feel like something doesn't fit, and there's a, an element of surreal disbelief to it you know to, to people's experiences whether you want to say it's like what happened to kevin an international assassin or like people just fun there's a fundamental break and things just get really weird yeah and i i really truly think that something is like you you i think that the show i mean obviously tom's novel is is is, is from some time ago but i think that it's touching into the sense that people People do feel a disjunction, like they, and certainly since the election, it just feels like we're in this weird anything can happen space. It, it, it's just odd to me that this, your show predicted the future. Uh, Thanks, a couple, Damon. Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, the president addressed the Congress, uh, and many many of the congresswomen wore white. Um, and they all sat in the same part of the galley. And I just got so many emails that were basically like, best viral ever. And I was like, A, it's, it's, it's a suffrage thing, you know. But B, like, I'm sure Tom was writing to that same idea. Um, uh, and it's, it, it, it was, it's just a crazy image, you know. But the thing you just said, if you were to describe, like, give someone the log line of an episode, it would seem bananas but how many different just one day one day since january 20th have you like set you just reiterate it in your mind and you're like if i had said that these things would happen on one day to a friend of mine two years ago they would have said you need to seek professional help right. none of that could ever be a, a series of things that happened in one day in america <laughs> it doesn't seem right well that's i mean 
Look, uh, again, we're, we're still very early in it, and I, and I do feel like looking at things through a distinctly, you know, liberal lens. Um, you know, we live in Los Angeles. That's our political ideology. But I think for us, um, you know, that idea of, like, everybody was just in shock. Um, and, uh, and, and that's our fault because the fact that we're in shock is the problem, you know, not to get political. And so that idea of, like, you do live – you know, inside your bubble, you know, with your own system of beliefs in terms of the way that things are going to work. And when they don't work out that way, particularly on a very large scale, you do go into a form of shock. And so, you know, like it, it feels like wah, wah to say it, but like, you know, so much sleep was lost. And it's like those seven seconds when you wake up in the morning still and you're just like, oh, like what a beautiful and then you shit, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, that's um, that's a part of it. But, you know, um uh, we have an amazing resilience as a species to just kind of keep on, keep on keeping on, as they say. And um, that's one of the things that I admire most about the characters on the show is um, it feels like one of the things that makes the most sense to do is to just kill yourself um, in the wake of something like the sudden departure. It, it, you know, for Nora, for example, you know, you just basically go like, why even go on living? Mm -hmm. But they, you know, but they keep, keep moving forwards and I think that there's just something admirable to getting out of bed in the morning at least I keep telling myself that because I'm unemployed right now well, the, that's all I'm doing the main question really about resilience is how horrible are you going to be Reverend Matt like what <laughs> terrible terrible things will befall Christopher Eccleston's character did you like did you have like a special writers room meetings just devoted to like how can we be terrible to this guy I, I would argue I would argue that, you know, in like that you could basically make columns for all of the characters and um, and Eccleston, your heart just breaks for the guy because of his performance. And he's so like well-intentioned and so unflinching. But like, have we put him through anything worse than what Nora's been through or what Kevin's been through or what John Murphy's been through um, or or what Evie Murphy's been? Th I mean, I. I, I do think like those things, you know, stick out, but like the worst, you know, he gets a little bit wet as he's trying to, uh, to, to bring his, uh, wife on in a wheelchair through a drain pipe and he has to beat a guy with an oar. But like compared to, uh, Thoreau, uh, or K Kevin getting shot in the chest and buried in the ground and drinking poison and being haunted by Ann Dowd. And Dowd's wonderful, but you know, look, it, no, it, 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 it was a tough day. He, that was all season long. He was going through that, mm -hmm. and Matt does get rewarded at the end. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like his his faith gets uh, gets paid off. You know, suffice to say, um, uh, it's not going to be an easy season for for Matt Jamison. Another question you're probably not going to answer, but how I would like to just say for the record is, that Marine Ryan pumped her fist <laughs> I'm a when bad I said person. that. I'm a, yeah, I'm a bad. It's like that so little, I'm, it was like that I'm, little baby me. Except, I love it. Yeah, I was just saying another question. I'm probably not going to get an answer to, but given that, how many of these characters are going to? We know that Kevin and Nora end up in Australia, but how many of the characters are going to come along with them as well? Are we going to get to see this whole, fa you know, this family, uh, this cast that we've gotten grown to know and sort of love? It's mostly I'm, koalas. I know, koalas. Yeah. I think koalas. lots of koalas. A lot of yeah. Syphilitic koalas. That's one of the things that we learned when we went to Australia is like, A, koalas are fierce, and B, they all have syphilis. 
So excellent. You know, Thank you for ruining yeah, my just, world again. Just, Podcast by yeah, Damon Lindelof. They have just really good branding, uh, <laughs> okay. koala bears. Nice. Uh, in any case, um, uh, we we had ten episodes in season one and season two, and we have eight episodes in season three. So immediately we were aware of the fact that we had to pace the show differently and think about storytelling a little bit differently with two less hours because we didn't want the show to feel rushed. And one of the things that became apparent to us very early was that we couldn't really introduce any major new characters into the show, especially if you're kind of moving into a modality of ending things. Um, in season two, obviously, we introduced the Murphy family, uh, who ended up being a huge part of the second season of the show. But it takes time to introduce and care about a new family um, or new characters. And so we were like, okay, we kind of got to just um, uh, dial in and focus on the characters we care about the most. And then we looked at all of them and said, who are the ones who feel like they have the furthest to go to achieve some level of uh, closure or to feel like they're, they're in a be- better place than we left them. And, uh, and then we made a determination there. And those are the characters that we ended up focusing on in the, the third and final season of the show. I mean, I can say that there's a lot less focus on the kids this year. Uh, Margaret Qualley uh, got a movie that would have really interfered with our shooting schedule um, uh, in Australia and, and, it, and to come down to, te- uh, to come down to Australia is a big haul. Like you can't just say, Hey, we're in Texas. You're shooting the movie in LA. You can kind of come back and forth. So, uh, so for Margaret and, uh, and Chris Zilka, they're in the season for sure. Uh, but much less prevalent than they have been in previous seasons. Cause I think that especially because they're younger, those characters are much more resilient. So, you know, they're, 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 there are there there is a focus on the characters that you know that you know and love without we introduced maybe one one new character an australian character lindsay duncan we've talked we talked about casting her she's an incredible uh actor um and i can't wait for you guys to see um who she is and how we introduce her and then we and then scott glenn who basically as kevin senior was kind of a guest star in season one and season two he is now a serious regular um and we're uh, focusing on his story quite a bit this season, so that just didn't leave a lot of room for uh, um, for for everybody. So we had to kind of um, batten down the hatches, as it were. That sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, I, I always want more Scott Glenn. More Scott Glenn's a good thing. You uh, you will not be you you will not feel like you didn't get enough Scott Glenn at the end of season three. It's interesting because I I um, in terms of uh, going back to Justin Thoreau's character though was your pitch meeting with him before season one essentially there will be a lot of bodies of water (laughs) (laughs) and stuff about faith really great character scenes really wrenching interesting personal emotional stuff but it's mainly about getting you wet drenched yeah Head to toe. Was that? Was that essentially? When did that come up? When did that come up? <laughs> At what point? Did he ever come to up to you on set and just say, "What's wh- what's up what? with all the water?" Just just explain it to me. Give me. I think me like the- I think like in the pilot, which he which he obviously read before we cast him. Um, he's shoot the guy shooting dogs at the end of it. So it's like, he's like, Oh, if, if you're down, if you're down for shooting dogs, you're kind of down for anything. (laughs) And I've told the story before, but it, it bears reiterating. He is so game for everything. I mean, we've never in the writer's room are like, Oh, like it it throws going to bounce on this. He always approaches it from the improv comedy, uh, approach of yes. And which is like, okay, 
that helped me make sense of this, but I want to do it for you. And the only exception was at the end of season two, I texted him, hey, can you sing? Because Parada had just pitched the, nope. kara- the karaoke beat. And <laughs> then he, he wrote back, why? <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is good. Because he's going to be really uncomfortable. He's, you know, and that's going to be great. It's going to seem extremely awkward. Because if he had basically been like, to be honest with you, I'm kind of an amazing singer. There's nothing I hate more on television when, like, a character just sings awesome. Like, if you're Mandy Moore, like, I I know what I'm getting coming into it. But it's sort of like, oh, like, Mandy Patinkin, Mm -hmm. like... You're an amazing actor. That's enough. I don't need you to suddenly like start singing uh, "Man from La Mancha," you know. And he's got a. He's by the way, Man, Mandy, if you're listening, you had the voice of an angel. And also, why are you listening? But, um, oh, come on, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, so it, it, it's like, but he never pushed back against doing it. Um, it, it he figured it out. This season three is really the karaoke season. Oh, absolutely. Karaoke, karaoke and koalas. Well, There's I mean, your tagline. Uh, yes, sir. What, what I'm willing to HBO say can is, have it. we'll let them have it. Many, many television shows have tried the musical episode, but none before now have tried the musical season. <laughs> and I just kind of felt like, wouldn't it be great if everybody just sung constantly? And they're yeah. in Australia, so it's mostly ACDC covers. Oh. For sure, gotta be absolutely yeah. that and uh, um, uh, the Bee Gees. The Bee Gees, I'm yeah. I'm in. Yeah, yeah. So, given that this is your series finale, is it what you had in mind for when you set out to start the show? Um, I there there's an organic sense of discovery along the way. This was much different than certainly Lost or or a serialized show that relies heavily on mythology because Parada was so explicit in his novel and then he and I were very explicit when we when we first started doing the show which is the show is not about answering the question where did all these people go and why them and what are the you know what are the cosmic um, forces uh, behind it it's much more about existing uh, in this world and I and I understood that that would make the show more of a niche show like I think that there's another version of the show of that's a bigger tent show where it's basically saying we are going to answer those mysteries. And so when you take that off the plate and say, we don't have to serve that up there, you know, people may want it, but there's not an expectation of it. Really. There's an entirely different, um, goal in mind, which is to just, um, uh, you know, find find a resolution for the characters that feels earned. Um, and so, the the design of this season isn't really significantly different than seasons one and season two or season three, kind of going back to what Mo was asking about Matt Jameson, which is you watch these characters run the gauntlet and take a tremendous amount of abuse and um, like both at the the hands of the world, but also at each other's hands. And then they find some degree of grace at the end. Um, I don't, think that we are trying to reinvent the wheel here and say you're going to be blown away by the series finale it's not at all what you expect we're tr- we're doing exactly the same thing again you know every harry potter book has more or less the same ending which is something mysterious is happening at hogwarts voldemort's trying to kill harry at the end of the book voldemort has it gets close harry survives maybe you lose a cedric diggory along the way but that's how it ends and i think that um 
foiled again. Yeah, we Baltimore. always, yeah, <laughs> we always knew how the seventh book uh, was going to end. Uh, J.K. Rowling delivered exactly kind of what we expected and what was promised, and that was immensely satisfying in its own right. And so, you know, I think that that was the goal. But yeah, we between seasons to the beginning of season three, all the writers basically got together in a room and we were like, "What's the last scene?" That's where we started. We knew that all we knew was we were going to Australia, but many other huge parts of the story hadn't been figured out yet. What's the last scene of the series? We figured out what felt exactly right, um, landed on it, and then we just wrote backwards from there. And a couple things changed along the way, but the the fundamental, um, uh, you know, spirit of that scene in both. Uh, what it was about and what was happening in it and who was in it, you know, stayed the same all the way through the writing process. And it was our North Star. So if people hate it, it's not, um, you know, uh, or if they love it, I, I will. All I can say is, you know, it was meticulously planned out and we reached our writer's room is very is a very tough writer's room. And ultimately incredibly rewarding as a result of that and i think that there are number no, you know none of the people in that room are sycophants uh and um nobody's the, in the in reality show speak nobody's there to make friends but it does matter <laughs> to all of us because we hold each other in such high regard so at any one time and this person always changed there could be one person in the room who is like i'm not buying that and so they're juror number eight, um, and it changes all the time. And that that includes Parada or I. We could be arguing strenu- you know, strenuously for, no, this is awesome. It could be anyone could just basically say, like, okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. I'm just telling you I'm not buying it. And so if we could get it to a place of consensus without it feeling like we compromised or watered it down but, in fact, made it better or added the new idea to, to get it there. And the ending was like that. I mean, that was the first thing that we all discussed. There was a, a lot of, like, um, fierce debate back and forth, different ways to kind of do it. And then once we landed on it, everybody got super excited. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, if these eight people who I totally love and respect love it, then we're in good shape. And then... Um, I can't believe we've gotten this deep into the into the pod without me mentioning Mimi Leader, who is the other showrunner of the show, um, basically directed uh, many episodes of The Leftovers, has been running the show, the production of the show, and the vision for the show since uh, episode five of season one, and, um, you know, took the reins and, and led us down to Melbourne and, you know, uh, took control uh, of a crew an entirely new crew because obviously we fell in love with everybody in Austin and it was like starting over um, in many ways going to Melbourne and she's just uh, did a brilliant job of directing the uh, three episodes this season but overseeing many others including the premiere and the finale and when we pitched the finale to her she was outside of that room but had she said I don't know if this makes any sense but she loved it too so it's sort of like okay you know like that's kind of as, as as much as we can ask for i i'm reminded of another three season hbo show deadwood um where you know there's been a lot of debate in writing about well should it have gotten another season or the eternal like unicorn that is the deadwood movies which will never happen i don't think but um you know that was a show that there's almost an ambiguity baked into how that ends and of course obviously they didn't write to an ending as you very specifically mm-hmm. did but 
we always knew that community was going to continue. Like that was like it wasn't it wasn't as mythology based either. I think it was very much character based, and it was like how do the, these people will continue to function, and that world will those worlds will continue to to uh, I don't know exist. So I guess I kind of think when I think of the leftovers ending, I don't think of it as having well, you better answer this. It's more like it doesn't necessarily have to be this ginormous. Mechan- you know, it shouldn't be a big or it can be. Th- I mean, or, yeah. I'm not going to take off the table. I don't, you know, I don't want to openly okay. deceive the audience and say the world could end in the final episode of The Leftovers. I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that with like a wink. Like, that is very much in play. Like, so the world um, could end in reality before any of this happens. <laughs> that is, that That's is true. Also a possibility. Just, also just, just as possible. <laughs> please, please, not before June 6th. You know, that's all. Like, we want. that's all. We I just want everybody to see. The finale of the leftovers. I think that that's entirely fair. And I think that's a perfect note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, thank, thank you, you so much, much for having me. Thanks for coming Thanks, in. Thanks, Damon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next week with another great episode. We're talking about what's coming up on the final season of Pretty Little Liars with executive producer Marlene King. See you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.